Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We pray that you would be with those who are sick or who otherwise can't be with us today. We know they are worshiping in spirit with us. We thank you that no matter where we are, we can always pray to you. We can always read your word. We can always have a conversation with you and, and be with you and be in your presence. Lord, we thank you for this time of Christmas, this time of light. When we, when we think about the light of heaven coming down to shine your light in this dark world. Lord, you are our only hope. And you being born and you going to the cross and dying and rising again is our only hope. We thank you that you took it upon yourself to do that so that we may be restored to you, so that we may have hope, so that we may have eternity. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Most book sequels, especially if they are in a series, are usually just as good as the first book. Usually. Because the author is the same and they're a good writer, and, they, and they, usually if there's multiple books in a series, the second one, third one, fourth, well, however many are in the series, th- those books are usually uh, just as good as the first. But what I've noticed, and you guys can probably back me up on this, is that a lot of movie sequels... You can't say the same thing about. They're not. They're not as good as the first one. Yes, obviously there are exceptions. I know some of you will say, well, what about this one? Obviously there are exceptions. But by and large, that's usually the case, that the sequel is not as good as the first one. And an especially telling sign that a movie sequel, you already know, is not going to be as good as the original, is that it doesn't even go to theaters, right? It goes straight to uh, video. I remember being a kid and seeing sequels being advertised as going straight to VHS. What's VHS? And I remember thinking, well, that, I know that's not even going to be worth going to see or, 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 or renting at the video rental store. Again, what's a video rental store? Well, you wonder why the movie company, the production company, even put the time and money into making that sequel in the first place. If you already know it's not even going to be good, why did you even make it? Last week, we talked about a first birth announcement. But the sequel birth announcement we're talking about this morning is eternally better than the first. First one's good. The sequel birth announcement is eternally better than the first one. Last week, we talked about the announcement of the birth of the front runner of the Messiah. That was the first announcement, John the Baptist. That one was good. But this one's eternally better. This week we're talking about the announcement of the birth of the Messiah, God himself. So the first point that we come to in our passage, if you brought your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. And we're going to be starting in verse 26. Uh, But the first point that we come to this morning is the visitation. In Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 27, we read, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel... talked about him last week, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We see a few things here in these two introductory verses to this announcement. This account happens one month after the close of last week's account. Because we read in, in, in the verses before that, verse 24 of chapter 1, After these days Elizabeth 
This is Zachariah's wife, John the Baptist's mother, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Then we turn to verse 26 and we say in the sixth month, sixth month of what? Elizabeth's pregnancy. So this takes place one month after what we talked about last week. Like we talked about last week, the angel who gives Zechariah, the priest, the announcement of John's birth is the same angel that visits a girl named Mary. That angel is named Gabriel. And what is exceptionally important is that Gabriel is also the same angel that gave the prophet Daniel prophecies specifically connected to the Messiah and the Messianic age hundreds of years before this exact same angel. The angel that gave prophecies regarding the kingdom of the Messiah is the same one who shows up again hundreds of years later to declare that those messianic prophecies are finally going to come true through the announcement of the baby that would be born to this girl named Mary. Now Mary is a teenage girl, a maiden, most likely around 14 years old. Let that, let that sink in. <laughs> she's living in Nazareth, and she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who we learn is also living in Nazareth. Now, betrothal in this time period was kind of like engagement before marriage today, but it was also taken a lot more seriously than engagement might be seen today. Back then, betrothal was seen in more legal terms than what being engaged is seen as today. In other words, Mary and Joseph were legally committed to each other. They were legally committed to each other and were considered husband and and wife contractually in every way except in consummation of that marriage and in living together. So in every legal way, every contractual way, they were considered husband and wife, except for consummating the marriage and living together. In fact, Luke is very specific about Mary being a virgin. He says it twice in these first two verses we just read. He's very specific about this. It wasn't just implied. It was crucial. It was vital to the, to the rest of the account of this, of this birth announcement and the subsequent pregnancy and the subsequent birth. We also learn that the man Mary is betrothed to, Joseph, is in the bloodline of the great King David. The fact that Jesus will be Joseph's legal son is important in his fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to King David about a never-ending kingdom in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Next we read in verse 8, or uh, 28, And in coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now we just read that, and we've read that so many times it doesn't faze us. But think about that. Think like you're reading this for the very first time. An angel just shows up, appears. And what are his words? Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. That's all he says at first. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. The words in the phrase, greetings, or depending on your translation, rejoice, favored one, are all very similar and thus connected. Gabriel is essentially greeting Mary by outright telling her that God is showing grace upon her, and for that reason, she should find joy. She should rejoice. 
Do you think that would be any one of our first reactions if an angel just appeared out of nowhere? That we would just start rejoicing? No, we'd be scared. We'd be running trying to hide under the bed, right? Trying to find the nearest closet. And, but Gabriel is saying, your first reaction to this, Mary, you're favored. So rejoice at my appearance and what I'm going to tell you. This angelic visit and the message she is about to be given are all based on God's grace upon her, and this is important, not because of who she was. It's all based on God's grace upon her, just like with any one of us. When God chooses us to give his salvation to, it's not because it had anything to do with us. It's because of his grace and his undeserved favor towards us. Mary was then comforted by the phrase, the Lord is with you. Now that is a very comforting phrase, isn't it? And it's going to be, it's, it's very uh, uh, important that Gabriel says that the Lord is with you because what in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll touch on this again when we come before the Lord's table, but what does the Gospel of Matthew record for us as to what another title for Jesus, what that would be? Emmanuel. God is with us. And Gabriel opens up his message by saying, the Lord is with you. God is with you. And the baby that you're soon going to have in your womb is literally going to be, God is with us. Some manuscripts contain the next phrase, blessed are you among women. You might see that in your Bible. While others don't, but it doesn't change anything. She's still favored. She's still blessed. Mary, Mary is still favored by God, not because of anything having to do with her, but everything having to do with God's grace upon her. Mary is disclosed with the information that God has chosen her to show his grace towards, which then makes her blessed. Now, what we read next is Mary doesn't say anything in response to this original greeting, this first greeting. She doesn't say anything, but her face shows this, verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The NKJV translates it troubled instead of perplexed. The NIV translates it greatly troubled. And the NLT translates it both confused and disturbed. What's interesting about this word is that it's only used once in the entire New Testament. Right here, translated perplexed or confused and disturbed or greatly troubled, whatever it's translated as, it's only mentioned here once in the entire New Testament. And it combines two Greek words to produce a word meaning intense distress. Intense distress. Now, teenagers are marked a lot by intense distress, right? Or they make it seem so sometimes, intense distress. But this teenager was so intensely distressed, not by the fact that there was an angel in the room. That's what we read. Not because there's an angel in the room, but by the way he greeted her. What the salutation was, what the greeting was. Here she was, an inhabitant of an insignificant town called Nazareth, poor, seen her entire life as a second-class citizen because she was female, and on top of all that, she was only 14 years old. And yet, here stood a supernatural being sent from God, telling her that God favored her. 
She was most likely thinking, what in the world is he going to say next? And do I really want to know what he's going to say next? So the first point that we have is the visitation. Secondly, we have the declaration, what this message actually is. Verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. He says that again. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Gabriel can no doubt see the agitation on Mary's face and gives her the same comforting words he just gave to Zechariah six months earlier. Don't be afraid, Mary. Whereas Zechariah was overcome with fear at the very appearance of an angel, Mary is more troubled that an angel would visit her out of all people, and her mind immediately assumes the worst. Gabriel then reiterates, don't worry. This isn't bad news. This isn't bad. God is honoring you, in fact. In other words, Mary, I can see what you're thinking, but don't worry. You have not done anything wrong, and this is not a visit to proclaim doom and gloom on you. In fact, what I'm about to give you is the most fantastic news you can ever hope to hear. What is this news? Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Gabriel starts out his declaration with, Look, or behold, meaning perceive, experience, or spiritually see what is to follow. Don't just hear it with your ears. Spiritually see it, too. Understand what's about to to follow. You will become pregnant with a son, and you will name him Jesus. Yeshua, or Joshua in the Old Testament, or God's salvation. And isn't that the most perfect name for the one who would provide us with a way to God? God's salvation. On top of that, more than you simply getting pregnant and having a son, this son will be, verses 32 through 33, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Number one, he will be great. A similar prophetic adjective is given by Gabriel to the priest Zechariah about John. But what is next is where Jesus will differ very, very greatly from John. Number two, he will be called Son of the Most High. Now this is cool. Most High was used to translate the Hebrew description of God, Elion, or God Most High. That's how that term was used to to translate the Hebrew description of God, Elion or God Most High. In Jewish philosophy, the son of a father was thought of as embodying the characteristics of the father, or a carbon copy of the father. So right here, Gabriel is declaring to Mary that her son will be the embodiment, the carbon copy of God Most High. Isn't that cool? Number three, the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father, his ancestor. Gabriel is saying, remember that prophecy a long, long time ago, Mary, when God promised David that he would have an eternal kingdom? 
Well, that will be your son's kingdom. That just blows your mind, doesn't it? That will be your son's kingdom. Your son will be the fulfillment of that promise given a thousand years before that. Number four. He will rule over Jacob's house or the nation of Israel forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom. Ending with this declaration, Gabriel is essentially announcing that Mary's son will be the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6-7. We read this every Christmas. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. I can't wait until that's fully fulfilled. Can you? He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this This child will be conceived in Mary's womb. The message about who this child would be would be fulfilled as soon as Mary becomes pregnant. But the full establishment of this kingdom is still future. And the passionate commitment. We talk about the faithfulness of God. Here's the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Nothing will thwart this plan. This will happen. So we talked about the visitation. We talked about the declaration. Who this child would be. Thirdly, we're talking about the submission. What are the very first words that Mary says to these incredible declarations? Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? This answer in question teaches a lot about Mary's faith. And it shows us that there's a huge difference between Mary's response and Zachariah's response. She does not doubt that the Messiah will actually come. She's surprised that God is choosing her because after all, God is God. He knows everything. Doesn't he know that she isn't supposed to have sexual relations with anyone right now? She's not married yet. Doesn't he know that? Obviously he does. That's why she asked the question. How can this be then, since I'm not married yet? I'm still a virgin. In other words, where Zechariah doubted the truth of Gabriel's message that it would actually come to pass, Mary believed the angel, but simply wondered how it was going to happen. We see here the profound difference in illustration of faith between last week and this week. Zechariah was a seasoned believer. He was a priest of Almighty God. He served God two weeks out of the year, year after year after year after year, doing the same thing in the temple, year after year after year after year. He finally gets chosen by Lot to go into the Holy of Holies to offer incense. An angel appears, and he doubts everything the angel says to him. But he's a priest. He's a seasoned believer. He's been taught everything in the Old Testament. 
all of the prophecies. He knew all the prophecies about that front runner to the Messiah. And still, he doubted. He had experience, years, and prestige as a priest of God. Mary was still pretty much a child, still. She lived in in an insignificant town. She was betrothed to a carpenter. Yet she believed every word Gabriel said to her. Precisely because she had a childlike faith. Zechariah let everything in his head persuade him otherwise. Mary just accepted it. She knew God could do it. She was just curious as to how it would happen. Gabriel then describes to Mary how it will happen, as well as any human might possibly begin to understand anyways. Verse 35, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph, the Son of God. Gabriel reveals that God's presence will overcome her in a miraculous, unexplainable, except by the power of God, unnatural way, and she will conceive this son. No one will ever be able to fully explain it to you. Because this is the one and only time it ever happened in human history. She will conceive this son. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. A term that places more emphasis on the effect of the experience rather than on the experience itself. And God's power will overshadow her. A term used in the New Testament to describe God's power casting a shadow or having an influence on a certain situation to make his plan come to pass. Again, in other words, more emphasis on the effect of the experience rather than on the experience itself. One does not need to know exactly how this will happen. All one needs to know is that God is the one who's doing it, and since he's outside the laws of nature, he's powerful enough to do it, and he did do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary will conceive in this supernatural way and not in the natural way. You might have wondered why. Why go through all the trouble? For a reason. A very, very important reason. The Son must be sinless. He must be perfect. He must be holy because He is also 100% God. There must be no contamination. There must be no taintedness. Because sin is passed on to the rest of humanity through Adam, the man, and, and says one theological view, therefore sin is passed from the father to his children. Jesus must not have a natural human father or else he would not be perfect. He would not be the spotless lamb to be sacrificed in payment for our sins. And therefore he could not have a natural earthly father. Furthermore, no mere human child would be able to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah, whom Mary would bear, would be mighty God and eternal Father. No mere human child would be able to fulfill that prophecy. After all, Gabriel reiterates in verse 35, Jesus will be the embodiment, the carbon copy of Most High God. 
Gabriel wraps up his message by giving Mary a sign. Verse 36. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. I love that verse. Nothing will be impossible with God. Here, Elizabeth's son, John, who would grow up to be John the Baptist, already starts fulfilling his purpose as the frontrunner for the Messiah, and he hasn't even been born yet. He's only six months old in the womb, and he's already starting to fulfill his, his, his mission of being the frontrunner for the Messiah as acting as the sign that the Messiah would be conceived within Mary. And he's being that sign to his relative Mary as proof that, can, that God can and he will make good on his promises. Zechariah, by his response, essentially asked for a sign to back up the truth of Elizabeth's coming conception. And he got it by not being able to talk for a certain period of time. That ended up being his sign that he got. Mary did not ask for a sign, but God rewards her childlike faith by giving her the sign of the miraculous pregnancy of Mary's relative Elizabeth. Mary's response to Gabriel is the most precious response anyone could ever give to a commission from the Lord. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That was it. No clarification. Didn't need any more details. Didn't need any more specifics. Didn't need to sleep on it. Didn't need to take a week to think about it. Just then and there, may it be done to me as you have told me. That's it. What is our response when God tells us to do something? I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to give it a little bit of time. Or flat out, no, I'm not going to do that. But Mary's response was instantaneously, may it be done to me, just as you have said. This response is one of complete and unwavering trust in God, isn't it? Mary's not a fool. She's not an idiot. She knows the possible consequences for visibly becoming pregnant out of wedlock and the difficulty of trying to explain it to people, especially to her betrothed, Joseph. She wasn't an idiot. She knew she could be stoned to death according to Jewish law. She knew that at the very least that Joseph had every right to divorce her, to break off that betrothal, leaving her destitute and trying to raise a child by herself. She knew all of those possibilities, but that did not stop her from putting all of her trust completely in God. And still knowing all of those things and knowing all of the possible outcomes that could happen to her, still saying, may it be done to me as the Lord has said. Now obviously, none of us will ever have to go through what, what Mary would go through and worry about those potential outcomes in that culture and time period. But, are there things in our lives that we just can't let go of 
and give over to God. And we keep saying, I just, I need more time to think about it. I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do to obey God. I know what I need to do to stop rebelling against Him. But I just, I just, I just can't. I can't let go of it. Is there anything that you're going through that you wish you could surrender to God, but you somehow doubt that He's powerful enough to take care of all the details? You somehow doubt that He's not powerful enough to take care of you in complete obedience to Him. Like last week, the God that miraculously brought His Son into the world is the same God that can and will empower you. Nothing is impossible with God. To let go of your worries, to let go of your fears, to let go of your anxieties, to let go of your sins, and trust Him with all of them. Embrace the freedom that comes with surrendering everything, even those things that by the world's standards should scare the pants off of you. What is better? And I know, I know everybody here knows the answer to this. In here. But we need to know the answer in here. What is better? To hold on to our fears and keep mulling over them and looking at them from every different possible angle and letting those fears dictate how our lives go? Or letting go of them, getting rid of them, laying them down at the feet of the Master and saying, you take care of it. Because I know it's in your hands anyways. You're the one who's going to take care of it anyways. Jesus says, which one of you can add one more minute to your life by worrying about something or fearing something? And in fact, as we've heard from Dr. Jeremiah on more than one occasion, if anything, it removes minutes off of your life, doesn't it? What is better, to hold on to our fears and let them dictate how we live our lives and what our future is going to be? Or to experience the abundant and rich life of releasing that and trusting God wholeheartedly with it? Mary would not have an easy life. I wish I could tell you that the rest of Mary's life when she said yes to this was just rosy and it just went perfectly well. You read in scripture it did not. It was not an easy life. She would have a very hard life. Her husband most likely dies at some point before Jesus is arrested because he's nowhere to be seen in the crucifixion account. And then she has to experience everything that is condemned upon her son including the horrific execution of crucifixion. But she is also one of the first who gets to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. She's one of the first. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 tells us she was there with the other 120 disciples of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. As Jesus is dying on the cross, he tells his disciple John to take care of Mary, take care of his mother the rest of her life. And we find out from Scripture that he does. Even in her greatest moment of heartache and pain, this is what we still see. God still provides for her well-being. 
So no, Mary's life was not an easy one. It was a hard life. But we know that God took care of her every step of the way. And even in the rest of her days, God took care of her well-being. And he gave her that peace of mind in the greatest moment of heartache and pain and darkness. And even in our greatest times of darkness and pain and heartache, God will care for. He will comfort. He will provide for our needs. These are, all, these are not things I'm making up. These are all promises in His Word. At the same time, we will experience a presence of God unlike we've ever experienced, especially in those times. We can trust God. He has His perfect plan. We may not ever understand it, but we can trust that it's perfect and we can trust that He knows what He's doing. No matter what He intends for us to go through, He will walk through it with us every step of the way. It's not like He has a plan and then throws us into the deep end and says, good luck. He has His plan. We may walk through difficult times, valleys of the shadow of death. But as David wrote, we will fear no evil. Why? Because we know He is with us. We know He is walking with us through every season, every step of the way. He will bring relief in His perfect timing and He will bring His comfort at the exact time we need it. There are many, many promises in God's Word all pointing for us to trust Him with everything in our lives, just as Mary did. Maybe you've come here this morning or you're going to watch and listen later online with something you've really been wrestling with. Something you've really been wrestling with giving up to God's hands. Releasing to Him. But you know what? Rest assured, that's the very best place for it to be. Lay it down. Give it up. Leave it in God's hands. Take it. Leave it in His hands. Lay it down at His feet. Leave it there. And know that He will take care of it. And at the same time, experience His peace that surpasses anything any human can manufacture or come up with or think they have. Because He gives it to us through His Son. And let that guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. May God give you the faith strong enough to give it all up to Him. And do what you know He wants you to do. May He show you things in your life to teach you to surrender. To hold everything with open palms. May He stretch you past your comfort zone. You know, I was thinking, don't pray that over me, Pastor. I don't want that. May He stretch you out of your comfort zone. May He stretch you out of your comfort zone for His glory. May He show you His power in your life as He grows you in your faith. And may your life, like Mary's, be an example to everyone around you of trust in Almighty God, His plan and His purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture that gives us the example of Mary's simple, childlike faith to something that was a a huge deal. It would be life-changing. 
her life would never be the same from that point forward. She would never just have a simple life with a husband who is simply a carpenter and have children. She would go down a very hard path, but she would know that she was still blessed among women, that she was still highly favored by you, and that you would be with her every step of the way. And so she could say with no reservations, may it be done to me as you say. Lord, I pray that we would take everything that we're struggling with and wrestling with and say the same thing. Let it go. Release it. Give it over to you. Let you take care of everything and experience the peace that passes all understanding that goes along with that. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.